great again to be with you this morning. This morning I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, page 1114, if you're using a Bible under the seat in front of you. This morning we're beginning a verse-by-verse study through the Sermon on the Mount in a series that I'm calling Kingdom People. So Matthew chapters 5 through 7, that's going to be our text for the next several weeks here on Sunday morning. So go ahead and put a bookmark there in Matthew chapter 5. Father, right now we want to take our place alongside those disciples that sat on that hillside so long ago, gathered to hear from you. Lord, teach us, instruct us, feed us. We are the sheep of your pasture. We're the students, you're the teacher. You're the master, we're the servants. Open our understanding to these important truths, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The Sermon on the Mount. The greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher who ever preached. This is a sermon from our Lord, Jesus Christ, our shepherd, the head of the church. We are so blessed to have this sermon recorded for us in the Gospel of Matthew. A sermon direct from the lips of Jesus himself. Let's start with the context in which Jesus gave the sermon. Look at verse 1 of Matthew chapter 5. It says, And seeing the multitudes, he, Jesus, went up on a mountain. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them. The context here is very early in the public ministry of Jesus. Jesus has become extremely popular, and he's not experiencing a whole lot of opposition. Word has gotten out about him. He's the miracle worker, the healer. And so multitudes are flocking to Jesus. People are coming from everywhere to see him, from Galilee, from the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. And in this chapter, he is crowded out by a huge multitude of people on the shores of Galilee. And there were times where it would get so crowded that he would have to get creative to teach the crowd. Sometimes he would get in a boat and push off from the shore and teach the crowds from the boat. Here in this chapter, Jesus makes a deliberate decision to hike up to walk up the slope, to walk up the hillside onto a mountaintop. Here he's choosing, so to speak, to get away from the massive crowds, to withdraw 
Here he's wanting to give a formal teaching. Here he's wanting to teach disciples, men and women who have much more than just a casual interest in him. He's wanting to tell those people that really want to enter in and become his people how to live. And so he goes up onto the hillside and the disciples, those who want more, follow him up. Now there were way more than just 12 disciples that followed him. At this point, there were hundreds of men and women who wanted to be disciples, who considered themselves to be disciples. And so you still got a very large crowd that made that trip up there. So he gets up there. The disciples show up. And the text tells us that when he was seated, he began to teach. Now, that's a very important detail. This is formal. When the rabbi took a seat, church started. The expert was going to give his sermon. And so sort of picture this in your mind, this natural amphitheater. There's a whole group there and Jesus takes a seat. And there's a hush. It's like you're in an outdoor synagogue. Now, this sermon would sort of become the standard sermon that Jesus would preach throughout his public ministry over the next three years. He would take this sermon on the road. In fact, when it says he opened his mouth and taught them, the tense of the language means that this was something he would continue to do. So this wasn't a one-time deal when he gave this sermon. He would give it as he traveled about. You know, back then they couldn't video messages or get audio recordings. Boy, wouldn't you have loved to stream that sermon? So he had to take it with him, and he shared it, and he repeated it in different ways and variations, no doubt, over the next three years. And it is most likely that when Jesus taught, he would teach for hours. He had a lot of material to share. Now, if you read through this sermon in these three chapters out loud, you can do so in about 10 minutes. There is no doubt that Jesus spoke longer than 10 minutes. So it's acknowledged by most Bible scholars that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Matthew records a condensed, compacted version. And so I I, I want you to just think about that for a moment. We're about to read a sermon that is the compacted, congealed theological teaching of Jesus Christ. The core essence of what Christ wanted his people to know. Distilled all down so that we can easily understand it. Boy, that should get your heart going. This is holy territory in the scripture. The core of Christ's teaching. And your heart should also get to thumping when you consider what the theme of this sermon was. This sermon has been called 
rightly, I believe, by many people, is the manifesto of King Jesus. This is Jesus speaking about his kingdom and the people in his kingdom. He uses the word kingdom nine times in this sermon. So Jesus the king has come. Jesus the Messiah has come. He's withdrawn up onto a private place. He's establishing his kingdom. The kingdom of God. The kingdom of heaven. And in this sermon, he talks about how you get in that kingdom. And how you're to behave when you're in that kingdom. What are his people in the kingdom like? How do people in his kingdom relate to this world? How do people in his kingdom worship? What are the morals of people in his kingdom? What does he expect? How do people in his kingdom relate to worldly wealth? Please understand that this is Christ's core teaching describing his kingdom people. Here it is all laid out from the mouth of Jesus Christ himself. This is so important. You know, if you're a born-again Christian, you're a part of his kingdom. Did you know that? You're in his kingdom. You should be absolutely living this sermon out. All these characteristics, all these things that we're going to be studying over the next several weeks should describe every one of us as kingdom people. And by the way, let me just give you a heads up. This is a convicting sermon. The kingdom of Christ is nothing like the kingdom of this world. The kingdom of Christ is nothing like contemporary culture. They are directly opposite. If you're going to take your place in the kingdom of Christ, you're going to live differently. In fact, you're going to be a member of the ultimate revolutionary countercultural movement. The kingdom of light as opposed to the kingdom of darkness. That's how stark the contrast is. So, with that context, let's begin the sermon. Look at verse 1. Again, and seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So most of you are familiar with how this sermon begins. Eight verses, blessed are. We know these as the Beatitudes. Blessed, the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek, the merciful, the pure in heart, etc., etc. He starts off by saying, who are the blessed ones? Who are the most blessed people? 
Now, there are many that are very quick to point out that this word blessed can mean happiness. In fact, there's some English translations of the Bible that read, Oh, how happy are the poor in spirit. And that's true. This word can be translated happiness. But please, this is not Christ's eight-step program to the constant feeling of happiness. Do not read this as Jesus is giving his secrets to perpetual feelings of happiness. If you get these steps down, then you'll never be sad or anxious or troubled again. Jesus isn't saying, I have a happy club and I want you to join it. I agree with Kent Hughes, who says, this word blessed is a positive judgment by God on the individual that means one has found approval. When God blesses us, he approves us. Blessedness indicates the smile of God upon your life. That you have become a man or a woman pleasing to him. You're under his favor. This is where we find true happiness. When we find ourselves approved and blessed by God, I'll tell you what, that's when you're really happy. When you know that you belong to the Lord and you're pleasing him. Blessed. So this morning, I want to look at just the first two Beatitudes. And these are so important because I believe these are the first two steps into the kingdom. These are the first steps, the first things that we must do in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. So look at the first one. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, again, that sounds so backward to us. The world would say, blessed are the rich, the filthy rich. Oh, how happy they are. Jesus says, blessed are the poor. Now, there are a couple of words that are translated poor in the Greek New Testament. There's a couple of Greek words. There's a word, penyes. And this is speaking of working class people, people who work hard just to make ends meet. People that don't have a whole lot of disposable income. They just barely make it. The working poor of society. There's that term. Then there's the Greek word, Tokos, and this word speaks of abject poverty, complete and utter destitution. This speaks of a person who has nothing, no resources, and without any ability to get any resources. It comes from a root word, which means to cover, to crouch, to cringe, someone who crouches about wretchedly. Begging, it speaks of the beggar, the homeless man on the street, crouched over, covered, embarrassed, handout. 
the beggarly poor. This is the word that speaks of that beggar named Lazarus. The one that sat at the gates of the rich man every day and begged for food. It says of him in Luke 16, there was a certain beggar named Lazarus full of sores who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores daily. That's the word that Jesus uses. Blessed are the beggarly poor. Blessed are those who have nothing. Now, of course, he is not speaking about those who are poor from a materialistic standpoint. He says, blessed are those who are poor in what? Poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are spiritually bankrupt and know it. Blessed are those who realize that they have nothing. To offer God. Blessed is the person who has an acute, painful awareness and admission that he is utterly sinful and without moral virtues adequate to commend him to God. John Wesley said of the poor in spirit, he has a deep sense of the loathsome leprosy of sin which he brought with him from his mother's womb which overspreads his whole soul and totally corrupts every power and faculty thereof. That's the poor in spirit. The one who is painfully aware of their utter sinfulness. Their lack of anything of spiritual value before a holy God. Did you know that the Bible teaches that that that's what every person is like apart from Jesus Christ? I mean, it's very, very clear. In Romans chapter 3, Paul writes, There's none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They've all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb with their lungs they've practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. Isaiah 53, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us is turned to his own way. Romans 3.23, all have sinned. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You are poor in spirit when you take your place in those scriptures. And you say, that's me. That's me. I'm spiritually bankrupt. It's been said, the first link between my soul and Christ is not my goodness, but my badness. Not my merit, but my misery. Not my standing, 
but my folly. Now, why are the poor in spirit blessed? Well, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs, and by the way, that's emphasized, blessed are the spirit, poor in spirit, for theirs and theirs alone is the kingdom of heaven. Only the poor in spirit, them and them alone, that's it, get into the kingdom of heaven. Now, why is that? Because when you're poor in spirit, when you're bankrupt, when you know it, when you become painfully aware of it, you'll fall on your face and you'll cry out to God. And you'll give your life. You'll ask Jesus into your life who died on the cross for your sins and rose again. And you will be gloriously born again. But you have to have that very first step where you go dark, man. You go low. You understand who you are apart from Christ. Pushes you towards him. Gang, those who are spiritually prideful will never get saved. The religious leaders in the days of Jesus Christ were the most religious people on planet Earth. Some of the most religious people in all of history. They were not saved. The Pharisees, and man, they thought, hey, look at me. I keep the law. I do all this stuff. Not saved. You can't bypass that first step. You must see yourself as a loathsome sinner. Now, I fear that there are a lot of good churchgoers. There are a lot of men and women who perhaps have grown up in church. And they've lived sort of respectable lives. And they just sort of have never really had this this sense of how awful they are in their unholiness before a holy God. And they think, hey, I'm, I'm better than most God's so lucky to have me. I fear for a lot of people who have grown up in the church where it's sort of just become old hat and they've never had that moment of realizing how desperately They need Christ personally. Have you had that moment? Have you been poor in spirit? Do you realize? And don't compare yourself to anyone else. Compare yourself to the righteous standards of God. And by those righteous standards, we are sinners. You know, there was a church at a place called Laodicea. Beautiful church that got started in the first century of church history. And it grew, and it became this awesome, bigger church. But later on, Jesus had to write a letter to that church. Because that local church got off track. Listen to these words that Jesus said to them. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. And do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, 
blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. See, it's real easy to be a part of church and think, wow. But we have to have that understanding that we're wretched, naked, blind, poor. You could put the first beatitude in a positive way. This is what Jesus is saying. Those who acknowledge themselves as spiritually bankrupt enter the kingdom of heaven. If you've never acknowledged yourself as spiritually bankrupt, never seen yourself having that need, first step. Look at the second beatitude in verse 4, very closely related. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now again, this is so backwards. The world would say, blessed are those who laugh. Blessed are those that are always just having this awesome time. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. And he uses the strongest word in the Greek language for mourning. There are many Greek words that you could translate in cry, weep, mourn. Jesus uses the very strongest one. This is the word that speaks of wailing that takes place at a funeral service or at a graveside. As people mourn their loved ones. This is the strongest Human grief, possible. What are you to mourn for in order for you to get into the kingdom? Well, you're to mourn for your sin. You're to wail because of your spiritual bankruptcy before God. The first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, is primarily intellectual. Those who understand that they are spiritual beggars are blessed. The second beatitude, blessed are those who mourn, is its emotional counterpart. It naturally follows that when we see ourselves for what we are, our emotions will be stirred to mourning. You're to mourn over your sinful state. These are not pretend tears. These are not conjured up tears. This is a mourning that comes from the very pit of your soul. You say, well, that would be a tough day. Yeah, it would be a tough day, but it would also be the greatest day in your life. It's a great day when you are truly confronted with your individual sins, when you refuse to rationalize them, when you call sin Sin, And it's the greatest of all days yet when in horror and desolation over your sin and sins, you weep. You mourn. You wail. Because that is when the divine smile begins to break over your life.
Blessed are those who mourn. Why? Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. You'll be comforted. You'll be forgiven. You'll be received. The gospel message, gang, is that you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for your sins and rose again. These are the preparatory steps. You've got to see how sinful you are and know it and own it and mourn over it. And that drives you to Christ. Jesus himself will comfort you. Psalm 51 verse 7 says, 17, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Psalm 34, 18, The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and saves such as have a contrite spirit. Now, if you're prideful and you think you're just fine and dandy, better than most, good churchgoer, but you haven't become painfully aware of your sin and mourned them, there's trouble. Has that miracle happened in you? Have you taken those first two steps? Jesus told a marvelous parable which gives us a great illustration of this. In Luke chapter 18, he says, Two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector standing over there. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. The tax collector standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You couldn't get two stronger comparisons. Jesus said, I tell you the truth. This man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. There is no other way into the kingdom of heaven than through a humbled acknowledgement of your desperate need. Nobody gets in. As somebody has called it, these are the first letters in the alphabet of Christianity. The very first steps in. And that should be a part of every single one of our 
stories. I love to read testimonies. I love to read of how people have given their lives to Jesus Christ, their stories. You remember the man named Chuck Colson? He was an angry, bitter political man in the days of Richard Nixon, got all caught up in the, uh, the Watergate, and he got, he got thrown in prison. And that was one of the greatest things, he said, looking back, that could have happened in his life because it broke him. He describes his conversion this way. He says, that night, when I sat alone at my car, my own sin, not just dirty politics, but the hatred and evil so deep within me, was thrust before my eyes forcefully and painfully. For the first time in my life, I felt unclean, and worst of all, I couldn't escape. In those moments of clarity, I found myself driven irristably into the arms of the living God. I look back on my story. I grew up in church. I grew up in a Christian home. I got saved at a Billy Graham crusade at the age of seven. And I believe I was saved. But I don't believe I really understood the depth of my salvation for many years. Until there was a period in my life where I turned away from the Lord. I walked. I did my own thing. I thought, oh, I, I wasted so many years. And, and God moved in my life and I came back to the Lord midway through college and I will tell you those first six months back I wept every night to sleep every night this profound sense of not only how bad I had been and mourning that but then having this profound sense of the incredible, marvelous grace of God that takes you back. Have you had that experience? Augustus to Plotty famously wrote this stanza to a famous hymn, Rock of Ages. Nothing in my hand I bring Simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Now we call these the very first steps into the kingdom. And they are. You can't get into the kingdom apart from these two steps. But Christian, I'd also like to challenge you. These same attitudes need to stay prevalent in your thinking as a kingdom person through the rest of your life. Don't you ever become spiritually arrogant and prideful as a Christian and self-righteous and thinking you're all that. Never, ever lose sight of the fact that we are poor in spirit. And that apart from the grace of Christ, we are nothing. And let us live in absolute, utter dependence upon Christ day by day. You got to keep it. You can't forget that. Paul the Apostle had that. 
That's why he served Christ so hard all of his life and why at the end of his life, in his last letter, he calls himself the chief of sinners. Never lost that. David Branyard was an 18th century missionary to the American Indian. Such a sensitive, Christ-like man. God used him in mighty ways. Gave his whole life away. On October 18, 1740, he wrote these words in his journal. In my morning devotions, my soul was exceedingly melted, and I bitterly mourned over my exceeding sinfulness and vileness. A seasoned veteran missionary who never lost sight of how desperate we are. Don't lose that. Would you bow your heads with me and close your eyes? Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your grace. We are nothing without your grace. We recognize this morning that your kingdom is for broken people who admit their brokenness. Your kingdom is for the poor in spirit, those who mourn. Father, I pray that as your people, we'd keep that. That would be built into the way we live. And then, Father, I want to pray for anyone here this morning who is not in full-scale desperation cried out to you. Could that be you this morning? Could that be you? Have you come to the bottom, the end of yourself? Have you taken that really good look in the mirror, into the heart mirror, and seen how desperately you need to be forgiven? cleaned up. Do you mourn over it? Perhaps the Lord has opened your eyes to that and you're ready right now to receive Christ Jesus as your Lord, to throw yourself at the mercy and grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. He died on that cross for all of your sins. You can become born again, a child in his family. You've got to want it and you've got to know that you need it. And if that's you, I want you to pray this prayer. Lord Jesus, I need you desperately. I need to be forgiven. I need to become completely, utterly dependent upon you. 
I admit my sinfulness, nothing good in me. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. Pouring out your grace upon me, giving a brand new start. Lord, I'll take, I'll take that first step right now. Take me, save me. Make me one of your kingdom people, now and forever. In Jesus' name, amen.